2: Donald Trump's abysmal response to the Charlottesville white supremacist rally has effectively killed his relationship with corporate America. And the fallout from the diplomatic and economic boycott of Qatar by its neighbours could reach as far as London. These are the issues we'll be tackling later in this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking News columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Anthony Curry, and back from her jaunt to America's South is my co-host Jennifer Saber. Hi, Jen.
3: Hello. Donald Trump is losing the support of the country's business leaders. His inexcusable unwillingness to condemn Nazis and white supremacist groups over last weekend's rally in Virginia has prompted several chief executives to quit his advisory councils. Now, it's Wednesday around 1 o'clock here in New York. Um, this is a fast-moving story. There have been uh, several CEO names, and including possibly Steve Schwartzman, could be disbanding his advisory council. So there's a lot going on here. And to discuss it, we have... Our Washington columnist, Gina Chan, and here with us in New York, Associate Editor Tom Berkley. Either one of you, Gina, maybe we should start with you since you're down in D.C. This is, as as I said earlier, a very fast-moving story. We have um, the CEO of Campbell just recently said she is stepping off the Advisory Council 3M, and then, of course, possibly Steve Schwartzman. Of Blackstone is dissolving his council. Can you kind of give us what's happening and, and what have you been hearing?
1: Well, since the rally that you mentioned this past weekend and Trump's inability to actually call out what we all saw there, it started with the CEO of Merck, um, resigning from the manufacturing council that Trump had set up and a couple others from Under Armour and Intel followed after that. But a lot of the other executives were actually willing to stick by the president saying, uh, you know, he, that they criticized his remarks, but that, uh, they still thought there was value to having seat at the table. That has changed really within the last day when the president on Tuesday came out and made more remarks and basically walked back some of his condemnation of the white supremacist and said both sides were to blame for the violence in the weekend uh, protests and saying that not all of them were bad people, which seemed to really be the last straw for a lot of these CEOs.
3: One of the things that strikes me about this is Donald Trump came to the White House sort of on this whole idea that he is a business guy and that he is there to get business done, so to speak. And now uh, it looks like he is losing a lot of support of, of the very, you would think, constituents that he would need to help him push through his agenda. So, I mean, where where in terms of what is this going to say about policy and getting through maybe infrastructure or tax cuts or anything like that?
1: Well, it, it does come at an interesting time because the next big policy push from the administration is on tax reform where really corporate america is on board we've seen uh, the chamber of commerce and the business roundtable among other business groups uh, launch major advertising campaigns on a national level just earlier this month so that had been actually one of the reasons why a lot of these ceos wanted to stick around the council because that was something where they were on the same page with the president They'll still support that. It's important to their company and to their shareholders. But I think it will now be at an arm's length distance from the White House. And instead, they'll be focusing their efforts on Congress.
2: I, I get it. National duty, regardless of what you think of the president, ought to be something we should applaud in general. But after this, you just want to be at least arm's length, if not more. So, I mean, Tom, you're looking at this yesterday yesterday. Is, are there other reasons why people may have stuck, wanted to stick around before, before all this broke again today?
4: Well, I, yeah, I think this really gets to the point of what's really changed in the last couple of days. You know, CEOs in general do not try to take overtly political stances. I mean, they represent big companies, tens of thousands of employees. They do business with all different communities and all around the world. There's really not a whole lot of uh, mileage in it for them to be seen as overtly political. And then you're asked to play a patriotic duty and there might be some benefits in there for your company. So, of course, most people say yes to get in on here. And until now, we've seen a few differences. So we saw uh, Elon Musk of Tesla and Bob Iger step down of of Disney, step down from uh, their council roles uh, back in June when uh, President Trump pulled the U.S. out of the Paris climate uh, change agreement. You know, that was a specific policy disagreement, something they feel you know, intensely about. What's going on here is not a specific policy. It really goes to the, the values and character of the president. And now we're seeing an escalating, uh, you know, the thing of the whole apparatus of a CEO involvement in the administration seems to be falling apart in front of our eyes because the president went back on his belated statement of criticism on Monday and basically, you know, seem to give the alt-right a free pass. So if you question the president's character and his values in public like this, I don't know how you suddenly come back on board for, oh, let's let's start talking about tax reform. I mean, clearly there, there will be work to do on on the business of government, but it's hard to see how you get this train going again.
2: I think you're right. And I think in the, in the piece you wrote before the second leg dropped on Tuesday afternoon, you did talk in there about how you know this almost gives people the ability, uh, or companies the ability to say, "Look, we can put morals first here, because it's nothing to do with what you know, what he's doing may well hurt our shareholders if we stick around." So we can we can actually mix business and morals here to a great extent.
4: Although I think that for some companies it's probably easier than others. Definitely, but I mean we've gone here. We forget how quickly things change. In two days we've gone from, you know, is Ken Frazier putting his neck and works on the line with his stand to. What is anyone? St- why is anyone still involved with the with these councils? And even questions about, you know, Chief of Staff John Kelly and and Gary Cohn, the the head of the National Economic Council, who had these incredibly pained looks on their faces as they stood there listening to the president go on about Charlottesville yesterday. Mm-hmm. You kind of wonder how much further can the, you know, the administration start to, uh, you know, really lose its lose its traction and and and. Lose its support.
3: So, Gina, I mean, do you have any sort of sense in D.C. right now, like, you know, how much further, as Tom said, can this go? I mean, it was kind of incredible to sit there and watch John Kelly and, and Gary Cohn just kind of stand there. You know, again, this is a man who basically is kind of giving tacit uh, endorsement for two groups that are sort of no brainers you just you you say that they you condemn them it's very easy Nazis and white supremacists and even from a corporate level this this should be again very easy to do so where does this leave others and and his administration
1: well that's the big question there's a lot of reports out today about uh, the unhappiness of Gary Cohn who was standing next to the president while he was making his remarks on Tuesday and that he was very upset by it. On the other hand, he is one of the main um, architects of the tax reform push along with infrastructure. So there's um, a bit of a a sort of, I think he feels like he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. Now he had actually already been upset, um, I think before all of this, just given all the dysfunction and had been, you know, sort of toying with the idea of leaving, according to sources I've talked to, but obviously hasn't pulled the trigger yet. And we'll see what this um, latest issue coming up with the president does for him. But um, it, it raises a lot of questions about his own reputation and his credibility, along with all the other um financiers and, and corporate executives who are in the administration, um, whether it's Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, who's also uh, standing next to Trump and is a Goldman alum. Uh, there are um, Exxon CEO Rex Tillerson and, and others who now need to question where they stand.
2: And what does it say? I mean, Gemma was looking at this earlier on. What, what does it say for policy in the future? I mean, if, if you start losing the very people who Support the economic policies you've got. Then who do you get to come in and and help you devise those? Do you have to rely purely on Congress? Do you? Does it mean that we're going to have an administration that's basically outsourcing its its, um, its economic policy to members of Congress purely because no one of of, of any uh, importance in the business world is going to going to touch them with a the barge pole?
1: I think that is a real possibility. And you already saw that happen, frankly, with health care reform. I mean, the the president was barely involved Um, when he was. He resorted to bullying the members of Congress whose support he actually needed uh, and then didn't get in the end. So I think you'll really see this turn uh, much more even than it already has to the lawmakers and how they work uh, with the various business interest groups in town.
2: So what does it mean for, for Trump? The, the influence that Trump showed in his first few months? So the ability, say, to push out a tweet, uh, that would knock a couple of percentage points off a company. That's, that's kind of died down already to some extent. Um, but his ability to go into, even before he took office, to go into companies like uh, United Technologies and say, your carrier outfit has got to stop outsourcing jobs to Mexico, at least as many. You've got to stop doing that. We're going to start imposing tariffs. We're going to make sure that you guys know that you, Ford, GM, Chrysler, must bring jobs back to the United States. He has surely absolutely no sway over people anymore.
1: Yeah, I think it would be pretty tough. Um, Even though, you know, on on trade issues, the the president still does have a lot of unilateral power. But even those threats are feeling pretty empty. Um, You saw in the past when he went after companies that their share prices went down. And when uh, the Merck CEO left, their uh, price um, actually went up. So he's really having no effect and maybe even helping them in some aspects.
4: The question is whether this – does this start to go even beyond the CEO community? Um, You know, there there was a lot of uh, loose talk right after the inauguration from very uh, disenchanted Democrats about the the 25th Amendment solution for removing a sitting president. But if you have somebody who has no corporate support, who has no ability to get his uh, agenda enacted in Congress – You know, if you start to see people leave the administration, uh, you can only imagine what, uh, you know, America's allies and adversaries think about this. Um, I would not be surprised if some unexpected people start muttering those kinds of solutions, uh, not just the, you know, the usual left.
2: So, Gina, are you hearing much of that? I mean, we'd already seen a number of Republican members of Congress announced a degree of dissatisfaction with the president you've got you know, mitch mcconnell the leader of the senate and he have been trading okay some okay mcconnell hasn't been that bad but basically trading insults with each other and you know mcconnell's wife elaine chow is his what's transportation secretary and was, who with was him also standing and she was yesterday. with him. this are we going to see uh, the gop in congress split with trump
1: well i think you've already seen that. Mitch McConnell for the first time today put out a public statement regarding the rally at um, in Charlottesville and, and talking about the president's comments. Um, House Speaker Paul Ryan has already condemned uh, the, the hate groups there. And uh, we've seen other leaders come out strongly against it. The question is, you know, what that means. I, I think for policy, like we were saying on tax reform and other issues, they will go, uh, go it alone and um, not really seek much input from the White House. But whether that actually translates to anything further with the Russia investigation um, and any sort of proceedings to try to remove the president, I think is still um, a bit of a ways uh, from becoming reality.
4: I would agree it's, a, it's, a, it's it's certainly a ways away, and it's it 's a, it's a, it's a long shot call but i I think that the degree of uh, of ineffectiveness of the administration the, the the chaos in its own ranks with the, the changing of personnel and the, the just the complete lack of, of much public or uh, uh, support and it 's not again not these are not narrow policy issues these are issues of character and principle uh we 're really in uncharted territory um, i would say even it's hard to imagine having you know vaguely recalling the the Nixon days uh, you know even then you didn't question the competence you may have questioned certain parts of character but this this feels unique in in modern American history.
1: Uh, Guys just to step in in terms of how fast this story is moving and Trump just tweeted that um, rather than putting pressure on business people on the manufacturing council and the strategy and policy forum he's I'm ending both. So there you go. He's ending both.
2: He's what? He's, he's pulling ending the both? The plug. Yes. <laughs> oh, so it's his choice now. <laughs> oh, okay. It's his choice. So okay. Uh, so after the horses have bolted, he's decided to, to, to <laughs> burn the barn down or whatever <laughs> <laughs> analogy we want to use. Exactly. I didn't want you anyway. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I've not heard that one before. All right, Tom, Gina, absolutely fascinating discussion and certainly one we're going to be returning to, I'm sure. Thanks again for coming on. In light of our previous segment, it almost seems quaint to talk about an M&A deal potentially inspired by the Trump administration. But that's what we appear to have got earlier this week when VF Corp bought Dickies for $820 million. Joining us to walk us through the acquisition is Timur Onda. Hi, Timur. How are you doing? Hello, Curry. Thanks for having me. So, Timur, let's start with the basics. I'm going to guess that very few of our listeners have heard of at least one of these two companies, if not both of them. So so just fill us in quickly. Who are these two companies? So it's VF Corp and
5: Williams Dickey. And although you may not have heard of VF Corp, you've definitely heard of their brands. They include North Face, Timberland and Vans. And apparently they have somewhat of a monopoly over the U.S. backpack market. Oof, who knew that? There you go.
2: <laughs> okay, so that's that's VF. It's a $24 billion company, give or take. Is that right? Yeah. It's a $24 billion company I'd never heard of. But then again, you know, I'm an old man, clothing, you know, you've seen what I dress in. Backpacks. Anyway, yes, exactly. So then Dickies. What's, what's so good about
5: Dickies? So uh, Dickies focuses specifically on worker wear. And uh, their brands include Dickies, uh, WorkRight, and Kodiak. And they have a global position in the workwear market, and it's family-owned, and they've had uh, around $875 million in the past 12 months of revenues.
2: Okay, so not, not a smallish company, but, but, but here's, here's, I suppose, where the the analogy to Trump we were talking about comes in. And I think this is what you and, and, and Rob Cox came up with earlier in the week. This is almost like the, the, the Make America Great Again M&A deal. Uh, because, as you think, it's all about workwear. So that's the deal. So, if if Trump's policies were to work, and given our previous segment, who the hell knows what's going to happen? These are the industries, well, the industries that these guys clothe should be the ones that take off. Is that is that the deal?
5: Yeah, exactly. And so uh, VF Corp, although it has a diversity of clothing and footwear, they want to uh, merge and synthesize uh, their worker wear segments with Dickies' workwear. And they believe this is
2: a thirty billion dollar per year market. I see. So, so basically, we're we're looking at, at workwear. So, we're looking at say, manufacturing factories. Um, what else we got out there. this? So I think uh, healthcare and even even government services, all areas where jobs are growing and where they're going to need not so much the, the the fancy clothing that I should probably wear at some point, but the the stuff that you're going to need that's durable that you know if you drop something on your foot it's not going to break your toes that kind of thing. Exactly.
5: So it's
3: it's a ready-made market essentially. So retail is getting slammed basically, you know, consumer retail and and what what's good about this deal is that you know these guys or women may need uniforms and it's it's sort of, you know, it, it it's not it, it, it's consumer proof in a way that retail at the moment isn't.
2: Yes, exactly. All right, Timoth, thanks for coming on. Uh, again, who knows if Trump's policies will actually make this work out, but uh, that may be the one silver lining to his week. Although, uh, let's not let him know about that just yet. Qatar has been the target of diplomatic and economic sanctions from its neighbours since June. The blockade, though, may have some unforeseen consequences for the global capital markets. Rob Cox joins us to explain. Hi, Rob. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm very well. How about you? Ah, Surviving, surviving. So, um, let's get the background here. Four countries set this off. Right. So on June
6: 5th, you basically had an, uh, an economic blockade. Right after Trump's
2: President Trump's visit.
6: Right after he had visited and gone. Remember, he was touching the great orb in <laughs> Saudi Arabia. You can
2: forget that picture.
6: <laughs> well, so, so yeah. So after that, uh, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt, and Bahrain decided to basically blockade, or or not blockade, but to, to boycott uh, Qatar, which is, you know, this little... Spit of land that happened uh, just sticks off off of the Arabian Peninsula into the Gulf and happens to sit on like the biggest uh, reserves of natural gas in the world, um, and uh, and is also going to be the host of the, the World Cup in a few years. Um, and they claim that they were financing terrorism, uh, had too close ties to the Iranians. Um, it's also uh, worth noting that they su- they support and it is the headquarters Doha for. Uh, Al Jazeera, the cable broadcaster around the Middle East, that um, has had played a pretty important role in broadcasting the Arab Spring.
2: So this 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 is all um, so far very regional, right? So okay, America has been involved because it's just been to the region. Obviously, America cares about what a lot of its um, allies are doing over mm-hmm. there. I believe there is also a big military base. There is a Qatar. big
6: U.S. Uh, base in yeah. in Doha. That's yeah. right.
2: Um, but the argument you put forward in the column this week is that. Um, this reaches far beyond their borders and actually becomes a much more global story, Right. given that the Qataris, along with a lot of um, the countries in the Middle East, have a lot of money that they're investing around the world so through their right. sovereign wealth funds. The Qataris. Which created, is now posing problems elsewhere.
6: They created about a. It's now got about $330 billion of assets. It's got some stakes in some very large uh, companies around the world, uh, the largest of which is Volkswagen, but they also have stakes in Barclays, they have stakes in Credit Suisse. Uh, the family the Qatari royal family has uh, they have personal stakes in Deutsche Bank. and one of the things that got me thinking was the other last week there was a piece that the FT had uh, which said that the Bar- Barclays and credit Suites and Deutsche were being shunned from mandates by some of the members of the the four nations. so they were talking about the um, the, the emirate of of Abu Dhabi, which is part of the UAE um, basically, Keeping them out of deals, including a deal for Abu Dhabi National Oil Company's uh, spin-off or re- IPO of its retail business. Now, um, it, the the point being, if you are deciding to punish the companies whose shareholders include the. Qatari royal family or the Qatari so- sovereign wealth fund. That leads you to think about some other possibilities, and that that got me thinking. Well, wait a minute. The largest shareholder of the London Stock Exchange, which is the the the, the marketplace that is vying with the New York Stock Exchange and, and others, but really it's between, between the two between of them, too, um, for the, the 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 listing of the mother of all um, IPOs, which is the Saudi Aramco deal, which is you know a two well, at least they think it's the so Saudis think it could be a two trillion dollar market cap. Company. We ran
2: numbers of breaking views. Right, we're saying maybe half that or more, but still yeah. an maybe. over a trillion dollar. major. Res- yeah,
6: but this is like this is the Daenerys Targaryen of capital markets deals, like no, the mother no of all. guessing what you've
2: been watching. On Sundays. <laughs> yeah,
6: no, who doesn't? But but so so the idea is, look, they they own ten plus percent of the LSE. If indeed you take this this the rationale for uh, punishing as the Abu Dhabi uh, government has done some of these banks, then you could see the Saudis think similarly when it comes to choosing a venue for for the listing of the mother of all capital markets deals.
2: So what what effect does this then have? I mean if, if if you are a London Stock Exchange or a Barclays or a Deutsche Bank and you know, let's not forget. Several years ago, some of these firms, Barclays especially, as I recall, really needed the money. Right. right. And uh, in fact, that I think was it. Was it the money from Qatar that set off a whole debate about what Bar- w- whether Barclays took the money properly? Right. Um,
6: no, there's a whole a bunch of yeah. there's a whole a subset of issues there. And remember, Bob Diamond, who was the CEO, yeah. they didn't want to take UK government money. They took. Right. And so, so what happened was, well, first Credit Suisse took a took a big chunk from the Qataris in early 2008 um and then in July 2008 the um uh, Barclays did a rights offering and rights issue to its shareholders many of whom did not take up their rights yeah. so the the Qatari Investment Authority took up their rights now they own something like i think it's 6% of the company at this point and 4.2% of of uh, Credit Suisse although they 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 do have um voting rights that are yeah. greater than that
2: so do they do, do these companies have the ability to to But if it got that bad, to buy these guys out, I mean, it may not be that big a part of a business for for these global investment banks. Who knows? I I think it's more of a
6: problem for the LSE, honestly. I mean, you know, Barclays, Deutsche, in which the Althani, two two members of the royal family have big stakes, um, and uh, Credit Suisse. I mean, look, is, is it... To have a big, stable shareholder like that—and by the way, they're underwater in a pretty big way— is probably worth more than winning a mandate here or there in Abu Dhabi or Bahrain or Saudi even. Um, Whereas I think for the London Stock Exchange, it's somewhat existential whether you are able to attract the biggest listing in the history of corporations.
2: The other issue, of course, is more of a what happens after Brexit. And whether, right. whether winning this mandate would show that the London Stock Exchange can exist exactly. as a viable force. As
6: Peter Thal-Larsen wrote uh, in a piece last month when the Financial Conduct Authority relaxed some of the stock market rules in London, um, he said attracting Aramco would be a big endorsement of UK capital markets as Britain prepares to leave the European Union. So it is a, it's a big deal for Britain, it's a big deal for the city of London, and it's an especially big deal for the LSE.
3: So in this horse race, do you have any sort of clue how close LSE is versus the New York Stock Exchange, or do you? And do you think that the fact that um, you know the, the the Qataris have like a stake in the LSE is, is- Going to be a deciding factor. I don't know. I mean, you know,
6: I'll tell you, it's extraordinary how, though there are a number of banks, a number of advisors, people are keeping pretty close to the vest on this deal because, of course, you don't want to be knocked out of what is, again, the Daenerys Targaryen of, of capital markets transactions. Um, but, you know, there are a bunch of different things that are obviously. That are that are influencing the decision by the Saudi monarchy as as to where they list, and those include everything from you know disclosure requirements. Yeah, well, where is That's it, is it more?
3: Is it more strict in the U.S. versus London? Well, the, London, the view is, is that the, the U.S.
6: is is more strict or or requires more disclosure. But, require, but also is looser when it comes to certain things like uh, multiple share classes, right? So w- this is the reason Alibaba, for instance, is, is listed in New York and not London or Hong Kong. Um, there are other things like trading volumes, liquidity, you know, the legal liabilities. Remember, there was this law that was passed last year um, that basically could make Saudis liable for reparations of, after 9 11. So that's a big thing. That certainly plays into it. And then there's just the relative valuations that oil companies um, receive in New York versus London. And our colleague Lauren Silva Laughlin is doing some work on that. And, you know, if you look at it, BP Shell actually traded historically always have traded at discounts to something like an Exxon Mobil or Chevron. So, so they're going to weigh all this in there. You would think that this issue of who owns uh, the LSE or who owns the New York Stock Exchange, uh, Intercontinental Exchange, the parent, um, should be a really minor issue. But look, they're, they're effectively, this is about Saudi Arabia. What's going on in Qatar is Saudi Arabia flexing its muscles as a power in the Middle East. It wants to be the dominant power against, say, Iran, which is also a really important regional power. Um, so this sort of proxy war, if you will, could play out when it comes to um, the investment banking mandate and the, and the mandate for who gets to trade or gets to call Saudi Aramco
2: home.
3: All right, Rob. Well, thanks for that. And it we'll be following this subject very closely.
2: Thanks for having me, guys. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, Gina Chon, Tom Berkeley, Tim Onder, and Rob Cox. And I'd like to thank you all for tuning in as well. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com, subscribe to the Views room on iTunes, and please do share your opinions about our show. We do leave this week's show on a sad note, though. Bethel Habty, our producer and editor, is leaving Reuters this week. We ought to be mad as hell. We ought to be calling a traitor and many other things. But let's be fair, this show would neither have existed nor prospered without her constant help and direction. Bethel, we shall miss your ideas, your wit and your ability to keep us in line. And we're supremely excited on your behalf about the excellent next step your career is taking. Jen. Jen. Over to you.
3: (laughs) Bethel, you have added spit and polish to me and Curry. We desperately need it. We don't know what we're going to do without you. We appreciate all your hard work and really helping us make this sound as good as it possibly can.
2: Now, luckily, we shall still benefit from the awesome skills of co-producer Andrew D'Antonio. And we look forward to welcoming and blooding our new producer, Ryan Warner, into the field on the next show. Please join us then.